chapter 8 an unkept appointment further dreams saint Audrin's solution to our promised embarrassment news of our inflammable air a cretan nightmare my bafflement more horrid discoveries a cowardly decision As I entered the tap room, I heard a great galloping noise on the stairs, and then St. Audrin, all thigh-booted military man with pistols in his pockets and powder at his belt, led our four young friends, also armed like picaros, down to the main floor, giving orders as he went until he fetched up in comical surprise a nose-length from me. Deuce, you're rescued already, he was almost aggrieved. Released, I said. Her Klosterheim's madness is at once more elaborate and subtler than that of the Landgrafen's nephew. I went to sit in the nook by the old iron stove. I was still shivering. He's been talking to me all night. You have had word from Monsorbier? God's blood, I'd forgotten. He'll be waiting. He is not. He never was. St. Audrin's long face clouded. Monsorbier's no coward. He must be dead or down with a fever, at least. The four radicals stood awkwardly at his back, as disappointed as my partner in their expectations of adventure. Someone should be sent to his address, he frowned, but as I recall, he gave none. Well, doubtless he'll find us, I accepted spice wine from Frau Schuster's hand. Did the Baron himself escort you home? He sent two of the ruffians who'd originally captured us, but before I left he'd recovered his spirits a little. He let me know that tragedy would result if we continued to drain his inheritance from his aunt. He'd disobey Klosterheim. He's bolder than I guessed. Or more stupid. He's the kind who'll take his master's literal meaning, but will count himself a cunning villain if he conceives a plot avoiding the exact letter of Klosterheim's law. He'll be shocked too if accused of it. He still plans to murder us, you think? He'll try to arrange our deaths more likely. Clumsily, St. Audrin smiled, loosening his sword belt. I'm more curious about Klosterheim. Why should he save us? Did he say? He seemed familiar with your name. My friend, he's another who demands a passage on our aerial frigate. He, like the Landgrafen, believes the Middlemarch exists. St. Audrin sat himself down on a bench and began to untie his jabot. Perhaps we should, after all, build the thing. We stand to make as large a fortune, at least, from selling berths aboard her. <laughs> and follow one of your fanciful maps, too. I began to laugh louder than the joke deserved. Where should we go, St. Audrin? Into Klosterheim's imagined worlds? Into the Middlemarch to look for the Landgrafen's husband? And what of our mysterious backer? Does the prince wish to create an empire in the netherworld? And he who gives us the hydrogen gas, where does he wish to fly? The land of cocaine? Breakfast was beginning to accumulate on the nearest table, and at Frau Schuster's urgent gesturing, I rose to put my legs under the board. Then I'd fainted on St. Audrin before I knew it, swooning with what was probably no more than fatigue, yet dreaming of Klosterheim's beak presence, of a sword with a bird trapped in a glowing pommel, of a radiant cup, and I dreamt of the mistress of my heart. Lobosa stroked my breast and breathed into my ear, making me helpless as a snake in a swami's basket, and I woke in the familiar swamp of my own perspiration. Where was Monsorbier? 
Had the duel been fought and was I wounded? I could not tell where the dream and the actuality divided. Moonlight ran into the room as the clouds broke above Mirrenberg's delicate towers. I sat upright, pulling off my wet nightshirt, washing my body in the cold water which was silver in the china bowl. And I remembered that Klosterheim talked at me all night, and Monsorbier failed to meet me for his satisfaction and sent no seconds to apologise. Some alchemist or natural philosopher had promised us hydrogen gas for our aerial bark, all in one day. Yesterday? My instinct shouted conspiracy, but my head reasoned coincidence. When such conflict occurred, I heeded neither, but stayed on a middle course, if that were possible. Yet when I drew on shirt and breeches and went to visit St. Audrin in his rooms, the Britisher also thought some conspiracy against us was afoot. His rooms were bright with lamps and candles, littered with diagrams and charts. Some of these were unfamiliar to me. I suspect all our enemies conjoined to achieve our ruin, he said. Though we planned to winter here, my friend, I think it would be wise if we met with an accident very soon. St. Audrin, said I grimly, you've mentioned no accident before. Well, I keep so many possibilities in mind, dear friend, I cannot always express them in words. Our method of escape has been forming in my thoughts for the past few days. Shall I enlarge? I'd be grateful if you would, sir. Then here's what I foresee. We announce a further demonstration of our existing ship using, if possible, the proffered gas. The balloon shall slip her tether, a frayed rope. We'll shout for help. We'll agitate the gondola. We'll make a great hullabaloo of despair. And the wind will do the rest. With hydrogen to lift us, we can go higher and faster than ever. We'll be a hundred miles away in less than five hours. With the right wind, we'll be in Arabia before we need to land. With gold and our ship, we'll find dusky patronage among the eastern Ottomans, the independent sultans, or even the Chinese, changing our names to whatever takes our fancy. And then, in a couple of years, we return to Europe with a good tale which serves to explain our absence and our wealth. None shall condemn us, and only a few shall mourn. I was willing enough to accept escape on almost any terms at that junction. Klosterheim had frightened me to my bones. But as for the gold, I said, how shall that be explained away? Robbery, he said. Those villains who kidnapped us will do. A plot against us. We'll broadcast something of that in the next day or two. Other money's banked in Germany, by the by. I'll go to the Landgrafin this morning and tell her of her nephew's bid to crush our venture and murder us. He'll be suspected of any foul play. And as for the French silk weavers, their perfidy can be explained by revolution. Meanwhile, I'm writing to our mysterious bestower of inflammable air, asking for enough of the gas to test the handling of our present craft so that we may redesign our steering mechanism and enlarge the size of our gondola. We'll know tomorrow if that's granted, and then we'll announce our intention of testing the gas. We'll choose a time when the breeze is blowing its best, and after that it's merely a question of deciding which continent we wish to land upon. All this was given in English, so... It should not be understood if overheard. In the same language, I said, well, the balloon cannot be steered. True, but wind can be gauged, and we can control our drift with simple sails. 
I admit we'll be somewhat helpless, somewhat at the wind's mercy, but not completely helpless. There are no complexities in this, you'll note. It shall be a simple plan, simply realised. Well, I was beyond moral scruples at this stage. I wished only to be free of nightmares and nightmarish events, of a man who claimed to have lived for more than a hundred and fifty years, and a female will-o'-the-wisp who haunted every hour of my days. This gives you gold, and Beck too if you want it, said St. Odrin. Beck regained with a lie I thought could not be Beck at all. The consequences of habitual deception and lies, Goethe tells us, are the loss of self-trust, the loss of true love, and the loss of goodwill of one's fellows. But the balloon escape, though cowardly, might lift me from Lebus's lure and allow me perspective, release from my madness. Thus my panic easily conquered my conscience. My only concern was that we should not come down in some land where I was not already outlawed. The image of our craft entangled upon a Kremlin onion gave me an ironic pleasure which the reality would certainly lack. St. Odrin reassured me. He was already, he said, anticipating our voyage, the adventures we should have in Arabia, India, China, and some unknown islands in the South Seas. Well, you surely cannot steer so clear a course, I said. No, indeed, but I can gauge the taste of a public which presently finds any sensation preferable to reality. The fictions with which we ease our daily burdens, you know. I'm planning how we'll retail these adventures which explain our absence, our recruitment, for instance, to the wild Bedouin, our discovery of the elephant's graveyard, our witnessing of the dance of the dead in Cook's land, our capture and subsequent escape into the hands of white devil worshippers in a hidden valley deep within the Saharan vastness. We shall never know poverty, Von Beck, do you see? And St. Audrin winked disarming all my arguments. There is only one thing less resistible than a charming and subtle rogue, and that is his reminder to you that he knows better than anyone what his rhetoric is worth and does not for a moment deceive himself. Later that evening I bundled up in a huge four-caped coachman's coat, muffler and woolen gloves, and went down to the river to walk to the middle of the Mladosha Bridge. The Bridge of Kings, with all its great monarchs set in stone at intervals along great balustrades. To achieve the solitude I felt I required while I reviewed my thoughts and considered my experiences of the past 36 hours. Klosterheim remained the most memorable. I wondered at his undoubted familiarity with my great ancestor. His insane tale of revenge and magic spoke of a poet's imagination, for it turned all accepted theology upside down. Surely mad, if he actually believed I could find the Holy Grail, or possessed a magic sword, or could wander at will into shadowy worlds, which he described as a mirror to our own. He spoke of marvellous creatures and beasts, and peoples reported by travellers down the centuries, and entering the general consciousness through the medium of legend and fairy tale. The more likely logic was that the lands of his description were no more than a reflection of his own profound need to believe the truth of simple romantic tales. 
In simple lands are found simple solutions to mankind's ills, so what was Klosterheim but a poor lunatic and retreat from ambiguity and baffling subtlety? I shrugged as I looked down into the dark, fast water of the Rat. I answered myself aloud. He's more than that. He was, I was certain, far more than a common madman in quest of common resolutions. Yet he could not surely be speaking in anything other than elaborate metaphor. I looked up at my surroundings. Mirrenberg was a dreaming city now. Pale clouds, moonlit, appeared in his sky like a malleable geography, as yet unfixed by a creator's command. Was all the earth but agitated gas and molten stone before she was born? And was she founded all of a sudden by some galvanic thought which itself existed only for a split second? Did God truly build and populate a small planet for his own purposes? Perhaps merely to relieve his boredom? Could God and Lucifer, as Klosterheim suggested, truly be locked in a permanent debate as they attempted to decide the terms of their truce and eventual reunion? I had no talent for abstract theology. My chances of learning an answer to the last question were as good as mine convincing Baron von Bredenvorts of the wisdom of buying shares in an aerial exploration house or giving away his inheritance to the closest arms house. I walked back towards the right bank. Looking down I saw the wall key again, still silent and the snow now frozen on the flagstones, near as unblemished as when I went that morning to meet Monsorbier. Against the demands of all reason I had the growing conviction that indeed there were forces presently at work which were larger and more powerful than anything I had previously experienced. Logic continued to lead me towards the supposition that these forces could be, at least in part, supernatural. It was time, I decided, to return to the inn for a glass or two of grog before retiring. I prayed I should sleep more soundly than of late, but I had little hope my prayers would be answered. In bed that night my thoughts returned often to Klosterheim and his references to our mutual destiny, my family's special gifts. I had always thought of us as a modest and respectable line of Saxon landowners, diverse in most interests, rarely in agreement on any subject but the most fundamental. It struck me that perhaps my Duchess of Crete had also seen me in the role of some Parsifal or other, and had consequently saved me from my enemy. At this she returned to me, as I crossed the border from waking to sleeping. I imagined that her lithe, pink body was soft against mine, while she told me what my character was and how our destiny was shared. Had my own faith and my own imagination become so weakened I could be prey to other fanatical minds? Detecting the enervated condition of my spirit, did they seek to impose their own dreams upon mine, hoping that thus I would become what they desired me to be, some kind of questing hero? I must, I thought, escape from all of it. The prospect of our flight grew more attractive to me by the moment. I am von Beck, said I defiantly, 
lying naked on my bed and touching chest and head and thighs, those familiar contours and textures. Then, but I must know. I must know, Labusa. I must know you. Why do I have it in my mind there's a revelation to be discovered in your Greek blood? That somewhere within your name lies the secret, the foundation of all your other actions. I pant as if in the first blaze of a new passion. My whole body is mobile, though I make every attempt to lie quiet. At night I cannot deceive or distract myself. I am enchanted still. The minotaur rages in a labyrinth, furious at gods who made him neither beast nor man. And Daedalus flies free of this island, while Icarus, elated in his first experiment, lifts himself too close to the sun and is destroyed. On Crete, a blue sea sends white breakers upon a yellow beach. The rocks are worn to shards, resembling the ruins, almost as ancient, built upon them. A black sail on the horizon disappears. Now beautiful Theseus stands upon the shore, looking towards the city of the bull. Time has not yet begun to be recorded. This is a scene painted in unclouded primaries. From somewhere, a bull's voice rages, its thickened speech complaining and challenging, as if it utters the poetry of distress. Theseus brandishes a hard, polished club. There is a green cloak upon his wonderful shoulders, a helmet with a great crest of purple horsehair upon his perfect head painted sandals upon his perfect legs, yet he has the breasts of a woman and the genitals of a man. Hermaphrodite challenges the old mad beast, the raging monster whose uncontrolled passions and appetites shall threaten his existence, our own future. He must be slain. The youth woman begins to stride with easy athletic steps up the beach towards the city of the beast the city of the labyrinth, in a time before history when man first came to value reason over sensibility and gave combat to the hairy halflings which ruled him. The cloven hooves dance upon the pavements of the maze. A great spiked club is beaten upon the earth again and again. The beast snorts and fumes in the darkness, its anger and its pride demanding sacrifice, the tasting of blood. Theseus pauses at the entrance, her chest rising and falling in conscious rhythms, half willing even now to kneel worshipping before the enormous vitality of the mindless bull. Theseus grits his teeth and rubs the head of his club against his leg, letting his jealousy and his fears build themselves into bloodlust. The rich stink of the minotaur is in his nostrils, and he must call upon his own warlike skills and courage. She summons a spirit of determination few have ever needed. This Theseus, my Theseus, advances. The sword of his youth had a bird beating inside the crystal pommel. A hawk flinging itself again and again in inaudible fury against its glassy prison. In Byzantium, the art of alchemy became European. Here lived Maria the Jewess, and Zosimos the Egyptian, 
who sought to understand the bonds making mankind one with the universe. For surely each was mirrored in the other. Each was contained within the other. The alchemists reduced the elements to a single tincture into which all was concentrated. All matter, all human aspiration, all time, all knowledge. A pill the size of a pea brought the gift of transmutation, for it was one, and therefore the same, and a means of perpetual restoration, both physical and mental. The great glass beakers, the stone retorts, the brass pans and tubes, the smoking elemental potions, had all led towards that end, the creation of a human being, Herm Aphrodite, self-reproducing, possessing the sum of all knowledge and virtue, an harmonious and immortal creature, neither master nor slave. Both male and female, the being described in Genesis. This self-contained creature springs light-footed across the landscapes of my dreams, and I see it from without. Yet sometimes I myself am that creature, joyous in my power and freedom. In me is Eve and Adam combined. My mind is clear, my senses alert, as I breathe the new minted air of an earthly paradise. Then Klosterheim is speaking, and his voice is like a wind from limbo, singing of death, cold ashes, and a nostalgic ambition to reawaken those hopeless, envious legions of hell, so that he might, might again command something, even though it be an army of wretches only capable of cruel destruction and the reduction of human aspiration. The quest for a reawakening of sensibility, the likes of von Bresenvoort's, Yet it is true sensibility which shall, by definition, forever be denied those who desire power over others more than they desire the delights of their own human sensuality. Hermaphrodite sniffs the dangerous breeze. Should she fight or should she flee? Again I was awakened in a midnight flood as my own juices sprang from every pore. I was godlike. I was afraid. Could so much truly be at stake? The very future of mankind? Until morning my reason was locked in a struggle with what I must describe as my instinct, but without resolution. I felt as if some version of my past and some potential tomorrow battled within me for my present loyalty. I feared to resort to the laudanum bottle at my bedside, placed there in all kindness by St. Audrin, but at length I sipped a drop or two and fell back into dreams where my actions I felt at least had no effect upon my ordinary existence. I was awakened by my friend hammering upon a door I had inadvertently locked, perhaps during the course of my Cretan nightmare. He told me that he had heard our inflammable air was to be delivered that morning, and he went to supervise its arrival at the little field. In my dazed condition, I scarcely understood him. He was also, I gathered, off on some half-described business with the Landgräfin. I fell back into my stupor, and it was midway through the morning before I found the strength to rise, perform my toilet, and enter the world of common reality below. 
St. Odrin returned to the martyred priest with snow on his hat and more than a little concern in his eyes. He found me in the kitchen where I listened to Ulrika reciting her dissertation, which she was due to present on her return to the gymnasium the following week. He was impatient to speak to me but did not interrupt. She concluded, sentimental, youthful stuff, echoing the rhetoric of our young utopians who would leave soon for Venice, and I applauded. Ulrika darted a look at the chevalier who bent a knee in empty recognition, for he had not heard a word, and she rolled up her pages. You'll move the whole school to high-minded aspiration, I told her. But she desired criticism, so I mentioned a clumsy phrase here, a muddy notion there, and all the while the St. Audrin tensed his fingers and did everything but pace or cough. At last she was satisfied, and I turned in some impatience to chide my partner for his unusually poor display of etiquette when he said, low and horrified, The land griffin is murdered. I led him from the kitchen to the public room, which had only a few rural travellers in it, here to buy ploughs and weaving machines. They had been drunk since last night, so were unaware of their own boots, let alone we two. You've just come from there? Questioned by a beadle for two hours, held by militia, then questioned by a major. First she was stabbed, then her room was fired by servants, extinguished the flames. Uh, then her room was fired but servants extinguished the flames before they took firm hold. She was naked and had been tortured. Money stolen and the servants say some books, but many of her papers were burned or charred beyond recognition. The servants vouched for me finally, and I had no reason for wanting her dead. I was released, but both of us are required for a further interview and shall be called as witnesses at the inquest. Von Bresenvoort is whom they suspect. He claims to have been a country, to have been at a country estate while the crime was committed. Their descriptions of the corpse was unsparing of my feelings. Two or three symbols had been cut in the flesh, suggesting black magic. But why torture her? I had been fond of that good-hearted widow. Von Bresenvort's inherits, anyway. Had she changed her will or dictated an appendix? Why kill her in a Satanist rite which would make him suspect? His dabbling's famous. Ah, oh, they believe they derive power from such rituals, and doubtless, stupid as he is, he expected the house to burn down. The likes of him believe that the violence of the sacrificial death is directly in proportion to the strength gained. These are mad people, Von Beck. Their reasoning is rarely penetrable. Ugh, I pray the monster's hanged. Well, he could escape. The Major and advocate investigating the crime must prove him directly responsible, or capture accomplices who will give evidence against him. His devil-loving friends, clearly, were tools or aides. The prince has learned the whole city has ordered the whole city alerted for his cousin's murderers. There's a fair chance they'll be caught. They could escape into the catacombs. Major Vuxmuth has every detail of them that I could recall. He seeks Klosterheim, too. So thwarted of our blood, he takes his aunts. Klosterheim will not be overpleased by his minion's folly. Von Bresenvoort was drooling to slaughter someone. Perhaps he plans to accuse us of the murder and so solve all his problems at once. Or are there more depths to the matter, do you think? 
St. Audrin answered with slow sobriety. I'd say there were extra complexities. Aye. But I have no trust in my judgment at present, for I am still horrified by the bloody nature of the crime. Tis hard to credit the evidence of such perverse evil. And can it all be for the sake of a few hundred talers donated to us when his aunt possessed millions? Now maybe he does not wish our ship to sail, or visit the Middlemarch, which he believes in anyway, even if we don't. What if he did not truly see us as a pair of charlatans, but think we actually possess supernatural secrets? Maybe even the key to immortality? Did he feel threatened by the prospect of his aunt's eternal life? We're reckoning, I think, without his credulity. St. Audrin accepted this theory, but lifted his hand to stop me speaking further. I'll be frank, Von Beck, I've discussed such things for half the day, and no amount of debate pushes away the image of her corpse or improves my spirits. She's dead, and we cannot resurrect her. The sooner we're gone from Muranberg, the better. Too many lunatics focus their dreams through us. Had I known the city contained so many morbid seekers after arcane lore, I would not have suggested this swindle at all. I became aware suddenly that St. Audrin was profoundly terrified. Well, at least now we had fear in common, I thought. I would suggest, said I, that we try by conventional means to free ourselves from our contracts, return most of the monies at least, and then be on our way. I'd arrived at the same conclusion. I could read from his eyes that he had never been closer to despair. But we have contracts, and as far as the law's concerned, von Presenvorts is a primary shareholder. I've read those papers every way, and we're committed, mainly because of that damned lawyer and to all kinds of penalties. We've promised passages. Will Klosterheim be pleased when we announce the venture cancelled? Our lives are at stake, my friend. In brief, we're back to putting our trust in high winds, frayed ropes, and the gullibility of our backers, both anonymous and all too famous. St. Audrin was badly affected by our Landgrafen's fate. He drank more brandy than he would normally allow himself. He displayed more emotion than he had ever shown, even when it seemed we were to be filleted at the devil's pleasure. Yet I understood that he could not easily voice sentiment in the matter, for it would be a sort of hypocrisy since he had planned to steal from the murdered woman. St. Audrin was the kind of man who tested his wits upon the world like a gambler at the card table, and was moved as much by love of his game as by the prospect of profit. He lifted his bumper in a toast, he said, to the memory of a worthy player, the Landgräfin. I would gladly have joined him in this excursion into maudlin escape, but some instinct kept me wary, so I sat with him and suffered his mourning as a friend must. And then as the taproom filled with its evening trade, I helped him in his bottle to his rooms where he loosened his neckcloth and the buttons of his breeches, eased off his stockings and pumps, and continued his ritual litany. He revealed all his fears and courage that night, his love for the human race, his wounds, his amours, the origins of his stylish foppery, and his taste for disguise. A duelist's conscious guard rather than the entrapping armour of the mounted knight. Words were used to hold back and contain the attacks of the world, for he had a hatred and a horror of violence which I could comprehend without fully understanding. 
and mysteries, he told me. I'm afraid of all these shadowy people who give us money and materials. Why, Von Beck? We're in too deep, man. Then he fell sweetly to sleep, a seraphic child. I kissed his unwrinkled brow and drew a blanket around his body, but did not at once leave the room. I was possessed of an innovating melancholy, and had no desire to return to my own bed in my unsettling dreams. Most of my life had been spent in my own company. I had rarely maintained a regular mistress, let alone a wife, and had never envied those who did. Presently I had a dim sense of being incomplete, of being only part of a divided soul. I had a yearning for what I could only describe as unity. What had I lost that was mine? Were we all in some way like poor Klosterheim? Satan, murmured St. Audrin in his untroubled sleep. I watched the lines of terror gradually return. His lips moved rapidly. Beneath their lids his eyes were agitated. Dead. I leaned forward as if he were an oracle whose words were unlock or, would unlock all my own mysteries at once. He took short, panting breaths. He struggled in the darkness and his right arm came free. Brandy, he said, and then sank again into peace. I sat in a ladder-backed chair, reading through his neatly drawn maps. Some showed continents which did not exist, unfamiliar groups of islands, a familiar map of France with additional territories named and marked, or Germany magnified to three times her proper area, yet having on her borders the same countries. Here, for instance, were Grunewald, Halbenstein and Alfersheim, all bordering Saxony. St. Audrin claimed he had all the maps, some of which were ancient, kept together on oiled rag or varnished onto wood from one collection. A drunken monk had sold them to him at a Bavarian fair, begging a gold mark for them and saying they were beyond price. Certainly they were the work of different hands, or else done by a master forger. I rolled those not damaged into his leather tube. The case was worn and frayed, and the brass fittings were pitted and dull. The others I placed carefully one upon the other. St. Audrin began to snore loudly. My vigil had run its time. I extinguished the lamps and both candles and trudged up the passage to my bed. The room around me seemed to sway. I was so fatigued. The candlelight added shadows in the corners of my eyes and I could almost smell the presence of a woman. She was not there, but it would take more than a careless dismissal of my fancies to free me. I desire no other. I still burn for her. It is with Labusa of Crete I must be reunited. I checked myself from further folly and instead offered up a prayer to a god I did not believe in for the survival of my own non-existent soul and that of the poor murdered woman. Major Vogtsmuth had my blessing in his search for evidence to convict von Bresenvords. If jailed, the Satanist would have his effects frozen by the state. He would find it hard to command his horrid flock without money to pay them. I looked out again into the Mladota Square, which gleamed black with rain. Two men hated me enough to want my life. Another hated me, but disdained to kill me. A woman remained hidden from me, yet had saved my life. 
Were these people in any way connected with one another? My only allies in this city was a veteran sergeant and a foreign trickster. I decided I must do as St. Audrin suggested and leave, wind or no wind, balloon or horse. I felt in greater danger than any I had known in Paris. I felt that my body's very essence was threatened. Fearing sleep, I found myself writing letters, one to my mother, waxing, sentimental and nostalgic, another to Robespierre, begging him to be moderate, to Talleyrand, asking him to encourage policies, not mere stage trappings, masking the procedures of the old regime, to Tom Paine in jail, advising him to accept any humiliation if it meant his release and passage to America. You were my mentor, dear Tom, as was Clutes, for all the madness of his anarchy and world rebellion, a most marvellous fancy but a hopeless practicality. I yet retain great affection for him. But yet you must recall your own common sense, and seeing the world as she is and how she may be improved, do nothing else which might result in your own prolonged imprisonment or even death, for this age needs a cool eye upon it now more than ever, and there are precious few of those currently to hand. Another letter was written to Labusa, Urganda, Cressida, Cartagena, Emendoza, Chilperic, Duchess of Crete, in which I proclaimed my love and offered a complaint. She had shown me too much of paradise to deny me at least the hope of earning a key. I yearn to fling myself into infinity, says Goethe, and float above the awful abyss. O oh, madam, I would be at your mercy, trusting you with the care of my entire being. I would be your servant, and so forth. The letters were sanded, folded, addressed, sealed with my von Beck crest, the sign of the cup. Was that cup actually the grail? Or was it, as I suspected, the cup which gave rise to legends of our connection with the grail? The last letter I would leave with Sergeant Schuster, not knowing my lady's whereabouts. I became eager for the dawn when I intended to sleep. I feared the dark and my dreams. I wrote a further letter to Monsorbier, whom I presumed returned to Paris, informing him of my respect and offering him satisfaction should we ever meet again. It was at this stage that I realised I was writing as if certain of my own imminent death. However, I wrote a note to Schuster, enclosing a few talas, thanking him for his kindness, hospitality, the goodwill of his family, and asking him not to think ill of me should my departure be sudden. Another note was addressed to my young utopians, telling them that their hearts were purer than the world they beat they beat in. They must remember South America could not be tamed by reason. Reason could only tame the beast within us. Even a letter to St. Audrin was written, containing what was not far short of my own memorial. I aspired to roguery, but was thwarted by circumstance. When we think ourselves close to death, how desperately do we aim a little of our substance towards the living, as if they are spars and boats from a wreck to carry something of us onwards towards the shore? Another letter to Muirenberg's prince, describing in detail the circumstances of our capture by the baron and begging him to abolish, in law and deed, the folly of Satanism and occultism, which is naught but infantile, witless, ignorant, dangerous, inhumane, cruel, and deleterious to the well-being of his great city. 
I wrote to my brother Rickard, telling him something of my enslavement to lies and romantic lust, but assuring him I could yet judge right from wrong, though my choice be dubious, for I have become as uncertain of my past virtue as I am of my present vice. It was dawn at last. The rain was all gone, but a thin white line upon the horizon crept like distant cavalry in a flurry of wispy gases up to the sky and over the rooftops, bringing snow. I put my final letter upon the pile and then took to my bed and a dreamless sleep from whence I awoke, a newborn optimist with St. Audrin's slurred voice in my ears crying, See them for a moment, your young utopians, your seekers of the grail. They left for Venice, I remembered that morning. I sat up. Enter, dear friends. I was glad to see their stern, embarrassed faces, scrubbed and ready for a further stage in their explorations. I hoped in private they would find a diversion before they reached Peru. I handed them their letter from the heap. Our ship puts us down at New York, or maybe Baltimore, Krasny said. From there we make our way south, either by ship or land. We'll go by land, was my advice, so that you may see for yourselves what the millennium has offered others before you. He was puzzled. Sir, I do not follow you. See Washington's rebellious nation, I said, the first in modern times to build her constitution upon a genuine faith in the power and virtue of law. A gentleman's country. You will like it, and it will not disappoint you as badly as France. I sensed I was speaking inappropriately. Well, whatever you decide, young masters, I wish you good luck. Well, sir, said Krasny, we are honoured to have met you. Honoured also, my friends, I wish you a satisfactory journey through the new world. St. Audrin interrupted with mock gravity. Your money would be better spent on an aeronautical voyage, but follies the privilege of youth as it's the punishment of age. Then they were gone. Four sons, it seemed to me. Four princes from an Arabian tale, riding across our world in search of the non-existent cure for all human woe. I made St. Audrin sit down on my bed. We must leave tomorrow, I told him, or tis my guess will be dead. The hydrogen's delivered to the little field. Its donor expects a passage, as does Klosterheim. But if we follow our plan and describe the ascent as a mere preliminary experiment to test the gas's power, we should be able to give them the slip easily enough. However, my friend, I warn you now that if there is indeed a plot to kill us, you must understand that inflammable air burns quicker and faster than anything known to man's science. Should we catch fire on board, we'd be charged before we touch ground again. But ain't you being a mite too fretful, Von Beck? Are you still not sleeping well? Could be I've gone mad, St. Audrin, but if you will not take me from Mirrenburg, I'll go by any other route. Our enemies converge. On that we both agreed, eh? But if we escape him now, we'll surprise him. They'd not anticipate such an immediate departure, I'm sure. Announce the demonstration as you have proposed. Say it's to be in two days, but we'll leave in one. St. Audrin shrugged. I share your wish to be gone from here. Very well, I'll do as you say. At my request, he took another pile of papers from me. It was a kind of confession, and must, I said, be given into safe keeping. He would send it, he assured me, to Mr. Magagold, an English lawyer who for some years had represented his interests. When my friend had gone, I took all the other letters I had written, 
crammed them into my stove and burned them. I began to prepare. Our journey must not look premeditated. I used changes of clothes as packing for my few other possessions. Most of St. Audrin's goods were already gone ahead to the little field. He had repacked the gold, he said, into ballast sacks, distinguished by their green colour. Our swords and pistols were hidden in sea chart cases and leather tubes. The gas was with our ship outside the walls. Seven large Yerobomes, which, said St. Audrin, had to be handled with extraordinary care. Special hoses accompanied them. Through these, the element must be introduced to the envelope by means of an already existing valve. St. Audrin was grinning as he told me this. We shall never know, I suppose, who, from whom most of our gold came, or who sent us the gas, but I wish him good luck for the rest of his life. For once I had no inclination to question my conscience. I was too eager to escape. Admitted, it was a coward's panic. I was in a mood to say anything or do anything to be gone from that just and kindly Mirrenberg. For Mirrenberg's foundations, it seemed to me, then harboured maggots, which depended for their existence upon a steady progress of corruption. I grew disinclined to leave my room, yet remained too fearful to sleep. And when the time came to venture into the streets to make the journey from the martyred priest to the Danos, I was almost afraid to go from the confines of the inn to the carriage. Sergeant Schuster and his family bid us farewell, expecting to see us at supper that night. I knew further pangs of self-disgust at this. It was left to St. Audrin to coax me with patient sympathy into the carriage which took us all too speedily through Marenburg's great walls and out upon the little field. <laughs>